Welcome back to the MicroConf Podcast. I'm your host, Rob Walling. And in this MicroConf recap episode, we hear Quiet Light Brokerage answer audience questions at MicroConf Denver in 2023. This session was awesome for audience participation, and they got to ask three of the brokers from Quiet Light questions about selling, questions about buying, questions about valuations, how to maximize your valuation, common mistakes, all the things that you would want to hear if you're considering buying or selling a technology company. And between the three brokers who were answering these questions, they participated in many, many exits from both sides, right? Helping sellers and helping buyers. Quiet Light is one of MicroConf's headline partners in 2023, and they have a great reputation in the industry. And so we were happy to have them answering questions at MicroConf. So with that, let's dive in. He's welcoming and introducing Chuck Mullins, John Hainstock, and Chris Guthrie. So, um, we're all, what's unique about Quiet Light is we're all serial entrepreneurs. I started my first online business in 96 when I graduated high school. In college, I got that up to where I was netting about 80 grand a month. Started trying to figure out what to do with all this money that I was making and, you know, didn't come from money. Uh, so I started buying and selling businesses myself. And eventually that led me to coming and helping other people do the same thing. Chris Guthrie. Uh, I actually came as an attendee to MicroConf back in 2017 um, when I had SaaS business. And then I sold that company to my business partner, actually, uh, just my share. And uh, that was about five years ago. And so now I'm here back kind of full circle, uh, helping people do the same thing, selling their companies. Hi, my name is John. I was also a previous attendee here um, and grew a B2B SaaS in the SMB space. And we ended up selling to private equity. And going through that process, learned a lot. I mentioned this before, but learned a lot. And... Uh, just appreciated kind of having some coaches along the way, guides along the way. And so um, this is a great home for me, being at Quiet Light, and just excited to be able to share some of that experience with you guys today, try to answer any questions you guys have. And yeah. Yeah, so instead of doing like a you know, presentation, we figured probably be more beneficial. We did this in, uh, in Malta. Um, just answer some questions that people might have. To encourage you, we've got some books to give away. So we have the Exapreneur book over here. So if you ask a question and you want a book, we'll give it to you. Um, when we think about businesses, we break it down into like four pillars. It's risk, growth opportunity, transferability, and documentation. So if we want to talk about value, there's a lot to unpack there. But does anybody have any questions just to start off? Anybody? I can just start talking if you want. So um, I am a, uh, by profession, I'm a Japanese English interpreter. I've been running my uh, traditional tr agency business, uh, matching up freelancers with uh, interpretation jobs for over 10 years now. I'm now trying to build a SaaS that will be a two-sided marketplace for this, to do this automatically. Um, I've been building on no code. Um, it's starting to work now. I have it on beta. I am now feeding all these transactions that I get from my traditional business through the platform to make sure everything's going right from both the employer standpoint and the freelancer standpoint. Um, I've recently been contacted by a uh, Japan-based language school that also uh, trains interpreters. 
Uh, they're interested in working with us so they have an outlet for their graduates to find real work, uh, which is fine for us. Uh, it would be, in, in our, from our view, it would be a good quality control in recruiting new interpreters. Um, they're also thinking about expanding into the U.S. and building, uh, establish a school here in, in California. So we're, we started to talk about potentially them taking over the business in a few years and maybe start by making initial small investment in the company. Um, but at this point, I'm not sure how to proceed, if that's the right way to go, uh, and so on and so forth. Okay. You guys have any initial feedback? Do you want to ask any clarifying questions? Yeah, I guess what's the you know, engagement looking like right now with uh, them? Do you have a contract in place? Are you doing any work alongside of them, or um, um, is this no, still we early stages? No, together yet, but okay. we soon will. They're, they they are uh, going to uh, set up shop in the U.S., uh, open up some classes, uh, and probably start working with us very closely. So it will be a strategic uh, operational cooperation. Um, and as part of that, we're thinking maybe it makes sense to uh, have them invest perhaps a little bit of money and uh, work together, build the business, and over after a few years have them take over. Uh, I am reaching retirement age, so I was thinking about how to hand over this business to the next generation. So this would be a good opportunity for me to keep working, but also have someone in place to take over the business when I'm ready to retire. So. All right, so you're very early stage, right? Like, kind of pre-revenue right now? Well, I mean, like, you're, 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 you're running yeah, the your platform own. isn't generating its own revenue. It's not attracting its own customers, but I do have this other agency business that I do get a lot of customers on, and I'm feeding that through the platform. So gotcha. it, 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 number-wise, it, it's generating five to $10,000 a month. Okay, but that money you'd be generating regardless of the platform. Exactly, yeah, right? not, so, not from the platform. Yeah, so you know, what do you see as the value proposition of these people coming and partnering with you? And is it just from having the interpreters? Because that seems probably like the easy part is to find people who would want to be interpreters. Like, so one, the investment, what is that going to do for you? Do you well, have um, for now, I, I'm thinking I, I need the funds to fund our marketing efforts going forward. We haven't been doing much marketing so far, so I need more people, more resources, and so on to actually expand the business so it generates its own money. So that would be a plus. Uh, working with them, I'm sure, will be a... a good way to market our services since we can pair up with this education system that will train the interpreters and we can offer the jobs for these newly trained interpreters. For them, we would be a good sell for their school because they can now say that uh, they have an outlet for the graduates where they can find new real work. So I think it would be a good strategic partnering of, of the two, so, sort of a vertical integration, I guess, of the whole education plus get, find a real job. Low. Okay. I would say that the this sounds kind of more like a business decision where you've got to decide if, if the terms that they come up with will make sense for you. Um, I think that if you're talking about potentially partnering with them to have someone to sell to to move into retirement, then that could be a natural kind of fit to go that way. But it's still kind of tough to say without knowing too much more specifics. But that's my that's my high level thoughts. It's hard to know without a ton of details and. Necessarily want to get on and all your details here, but that was one of the things that's going to add after this as well. Um, we're going to do two sessions, but I'll be we'll be in the back. I'm happy to answer questions too as well. If there's other 
you know, if you don't get a chance to answer one. So, but I mean, if I guess the first give question money, is: Does it make sense to stay independent until they're ready to acquire us, or would it make sense to have them make a minority investment into the company and work with them that it's, way? It's always on a case by case basis, right? If they're willing to give you enough money before you're even earning revenue then take somebody's money, right? Like if they're willing to give you the proper valuation, then you take it. Um, but if they, if, if, if they want, you know. Does taking money now are my options going forward? Not necessarily. Um, All I was gonna say, kind of lean back on what Patrick was talking about before with the small, you know, medium-sized, big outcomes that you're looking to achieve and working backwards from there. And I think understanding their appetite for where the business is headed and what their plans are is going to make a big difference and if you should accept funding or partner with them at all. So you really, I think, at this stage of the game, need to understand from them what their intention is, what the partnership could look like, what the deal structure could look like um, before going any further, right? Like kind of focus on the next step ahead, which is you need to gather information. What is on their mind? Where, where do they see this headed? You obviously already have some ideas. But I think it's good for you to kind of get into a position where they show their cards a little bit more. Otherwise, it's impossible for you to kind of make a decision. I mean, that's just something I would say in general about anybody who's strategic will reach out to you and kind of like say partnership, you know, maybe partner in the future. Like I've, I've been in a lot of these conversations recently where it's like we had this strategic partner reach out and they were talking about, you know, potentially partnering together and all this kind of stuff. And in general, um, I think it's, it's awesome and those connections are great to keep warm but they can be a massive distraction unless they come to the table with like some sort of terms, some sort of um, even like uh, an IOI, like an informal you know, letter of intent essentially that tells you what they're thinking and putting it on paper. Um, so that's what I would say is get something on paper that you can actually work with. Um, and your stage at this game is to, or your you know, goal at this, this point is just to try to understand where they're at flush that out, and then you can kind of make a, a, an informed decision. Can you throw the, uh, the cube over to this guy? Thanks. Um, question for you guys. I know a lot of people here have annual plans on their SaaS. Um, and so kind of a two-part question. When they sell those businesses, what are you seeing the contract terms generally being about who gets that revenue, the unearned revenue? And then I've also noticed a lot of SaaS people lately doing lifetime plans, and that scares me from, yeah, from the buyer standpoint. So I'm curious what you're running into with those. Yeah, never do lifetime plans, right? Like, that's, it'll crush the value. Um, always, always try to go with monthly plans. Annual plans are okay as well. But monthly plans are better. Um, you know, as far as, I'm actually going through this right now with, with the SaaS that I'm selling, and it's like, you know, we negotiated that, listen, you're buying this business, and they, you know, they're like, okay, we want all the deferred revenue. And it's like, that's a big fat, no, you're not getting it, right? Like, it's one thing if there's a lot of um, service and cost that goes into providing the annual service, but a, a, lot of, a lot of SaaS businesses, there's just not a lot, like the main cost structure is acquisition of the client, not actually fulfilling the service. So I think it, it depends on where you are, and that's something that you can negotiate. It also depends on the size of the deal and, and numerous other things. What do you guys think? So at least from what I can tell on the, it, on the depends thing, on the nuance there, for me it's like on the contract value size, 
what's the lifetime value and the, the revenue size of these contracts kind of largely depends on how they're going to look at deferred revenue situations like an annual contract, multi-year contract plan. Um, and like on the lower end of that, it's going to discount the value of your business because that, that's a risk. They have a risk of potential churn in the near future. Um, and on enterprise kind of style, mid-market style, where you actually have longer engagements and contracts, that's like a good signal, right? You have all these contracts in place, and as long as no one customer is taking up, or you know, a small minority part of your customers is taking up a large percentage of your revenues, that's actually a good sign that you have these contracts in place. And so it just kind of depends on the, to me, the, the contract value and like um, what that looks like. But for like, call a lot of like the micro SaaS, like where your ARPU is going to be kind of in that 50, 60, 70 dollar range a month or whatever it looks like, a lot of times it's actually seen it as um, like the deferred and the annual plans, like the, that mix is a little bit discounted uh, versus just the standard monthly revenues, which I know goes against a little bit of what somebody like Jason you know, Cohen would talk about, which is you want to use ARR, you want to use plans, annual plans to boost your um, essentially to recycle profits back into the business and to have this kind of loop of being able to continually buy new customers um, by pushing annual plans. There's a great talk that he did about this. Um, if, you, if you haven't seen it, check it out on their YouTube channel for the MicroConf. It's like one of the most popular ones um, out there. But basically, in short, like when it comes to selling the business, that's kind of seen as a risk to the business, like the, the deferred revenue, especially if it's on a low ARPU. Why don't you throw that other one to him so that way we can. Hey, when developing a SaaS company, what's the balance? <clears throat> you know, kind of like there's, there's a trade-off of uh, when you're going to sell, there's one element of uh, how big is your market, what's your traction look like? There's another element, uh, my understanding, around how quality the tech is. Is it actually secure? Is it actually something that can be integrated into the new company or, or that, can, that there's some value there? How do you figure out the value? Because I've seen people say, uh, you know, it, the tech doesn't matter at all. Just get the market. I've also heard people talk about, you know what, I was shocked at how much due diligence there was on the tech side during this acquisition. So how do you figure out this balance? Yeah, I'll start. Uh, I'd say that uh, oftentimes when we're valuing these businesses, we're looking high, high level primarily at the numbers and, and those types of things to help come up with the value. We're usually not diving super deep into the tech other than figuring out you know, what stack you're using, what you're doing for development in that standpoint. Um, and so I think that a lot of that will come up more during the questions that buyers have and then as they start to get deeper into, into that. Um, if you have anything else to add to that. I would say, I would say it, it greatly depends on the size. And like if you're trying to become a billion dollar company, right, like the tech is important. If you're you know, making $50,000 a month, the tech is less important, right? Like at that level, people are buying the, the revenue and the, and the, um, the profit. Right, so it probably depends, market size, trajectory, where it's headed, those type of things there. So what I've seen on this is um, it becomes more of an issue on a stock sale. So if you're gonna do an asset purchase, it's not as big of an issue because you are not transferring over the liabilities in the, uh, of the business with it. But if you have a situation where you're uh, selling the stock of the business, those things are going to carry forward to the new owner and they wanna make sure everything is buttoned up both from an IP standpoint, like you want to make sure that all the contractors and anybody who's worked on the business has actually been, uh, the IP is assigned over properly to the business. 
and then as well as um, like the dependencies of the, the code base and how much of that is actually you know, proprietary to them versus just open source and what are the licenses and stuff like that. So I think it becomes a lot more um, to deal size, it does make a difference, but even on a stock sale, um, they're gonna dig more into that side of things, the IP assignments as well as the, uh, the actual code that's being used. Yeah, so like if you're using like a no code situation, right, like that's probably not gonna be a $20 million business. Eventually they'd want to like develop their own tech in there. Um, when we think about like risks of a business, like dependencies on third parties, so APIs, um, platforms, like if your business depends on another business to operate, that's gonna be important when it comes to value, right? Because it's like the higher the risk, the lower the value, the lower the risk, the higher the value. So you gotta think about that when it comes to the code base and how it interacts with the world um, and, and how that's seen as risk or not risky. And that's gonna have a, a big impact on it. This is Rob jumping in from another place and time. I just wanted to thank Quiet Light for being a MicroConf headline partner again in 2023. Quiet Light is an entrepreneur-led organization that helps people with growing, buying, and selling online businesses. They have a great reputation in our space, and they've built a strong network of like-minded entrepreneurs. They've been around for 16 years now, founded in 2007, and they've built this business based on relationships. One thing that's unique about Quiet Light's model is their advisors are former entrepreneurs. So they have real life experience running e-commerce businesses, SaaS companies, content sites, and they have bought and sold businesses themselves. So they understand where you're coming from. You know, you're not just a number item on a checklist, so to speak. So thanks to Quiet Light for supporting MicroConf and supporting independent entrepreneurs. And let's get back to the Q&A. You talked a little bit about documentation, or you mentioned it. Um, so when I think of that, I think about contracts with customers, terms of service that they're clicking off on, uh, as well as accounting systems. We use QuickBooks. Uh, so can you explain a little bit more about what you look for and kind of the minimum? And are things like QuickBooks enough, or do you go need to have other sort of accounting systems and you know, really just talk about documentation? I would say QuickBooks is, is enough. We usually see, like, for most SaaS companies, we'll have QuickBooks or Zero or something like that, and then also access to like ProfitWell or some other type of tool like that. Um, that's at a minimum what we're using, usually diving into. Yeah, for due diligence, you will have to prepare more financial reports, most likely. Some of that's going to be like just straight SaaS metric kind of things that you're going to find in ProfitWell. Some of those will be custom reports that you can't get out of ProfitWell, though. And so, a resource here I like to give to people if they're on the you know, looking a few years ahead is to use a tool like SAS Grid, which is uh, by David Sachs from the All In Pod, and he's you know he's got the that big fund, the big SAS fund. Um, but they have this tool called SAS Grid, and you can use that to kind of build out your dashboard for um, what your contracts look like, especially if you're doing more annual contracts and stuff like that. Um, so that'll help kind of guide some of the key metrics, net revenue, retention, and stuff like that that people are going to want to see at a higher level. Um, but yeah, on a on a books basis, QuickBooks is fine from what I've, I've seen. Yeah, and, and with documentation, again, it's like everything is like size matters. So the bigger you get, the cleaner the books need to be. And then you got to think about like, um, like if you were running all of your um, payments through PayPal versus Shopify versus some third-party merchant, like who owns the customer data and is that transferable? So now we're getting documentation and transferability. So you have to make sure that if you're charging people monthly, 
that whoever takes over this business is going to be able to take over that customer base and start bringing in that revenue. Because the worst thing you could possibly do is try to get all of your members to you know, enter new credit card information. And you see that sometimes if, they, if they've got things set up incorrectly where like it can be a, a massive problem. But you know, again, as the, the bigger you go, you know, documentation wise and like having clean books, when you've got a small business, everybody's running personal expenses through there. Um, and that's why we have on smaller businesses, we look at like seller's discretionary earnings, which is kind of the profit plus addbacks. Addbacks are like discretionary expenses that a seller have. You know, they got their car in there, they've got their cell phone, um, you know, all these random things, and those can be added back to the profit. But all of a sudden, if you're making $3 million profit, like they wanna see EBITDA and maybe an adjusted EBITDA, but like, you've got to be clean at that point and you've got to have really solid books and you don't want to be having all of this like silly stuff in there because um, it makes it more difficult uh, to sell the business at that point. What about patents? Does, it, does it still have value? <clears throat> yeah, so at the end of the day, the value of the patent is in its ability to make revenue. So people often are like, oh, I've got this patent. It's like, okay, well, like, what are you doing with it? Well, nothing, but I have it. It's like, okay, well, like, is somebody going to actually make money with this? Because if it doesn't make money, then it's not really worth anything. So it's good in the sense of it, it de-risks the business if you're actually utilizing the patent and you're able to keep other people out of a space, right? You're creating a moat around the business, which is going to reduce the risk and allow for you know, greater growth. Um, but again, it's gonna depend and it's not, generally speaking, people aren't saying like, oh, you're making $10,000 a month, but I see this amazing patent, I'm gonna give you $10 million for that patent. Like, that's generally not how it goes. Maybe if there's some amazing strategic buyer, um, maybe that happens, but it's very, very rare in, in, in what I say. Yeah, I was just gonna say on that, the patents to me at the larger level, I do think actually play a role in that and that the IP has been assigned well and that you've like work through all the, the steps you need to on that side, like you've worked with an IP lawyer on that side. Because um, I've seen that like work out, play out at, at larger set, like larger levels. Um, so yeah, for sure. It can be a, a competitive advantage in a moat for sure. Yeah, um, my, oh, sorry, is there somebody? Yeah, my software is government software, and all of my customers sign a contract, their annual contracts, with a automatic renewal clause in there. So they're not re-signing every year. Um, I have a few customers that are on multi-year contracts. Um, I've heard mixed feelings about this. Um, my churn is, is actually zero, but on a low to, low to next to nothing churn, how important is it to have multi-year contracts when it comes time for acquisition? Because I've heard some people say that'll increase your value or your multiple by quite a bit, and some are saying, well, that, that doesn't really matter that much. So let me first answer your question by talking about something else that's more important for you. Okay. So, you know, 95, 99% of businesses are done as asset sales, but in your instance, it sounds like it would probably need to be a stock sale because of those government contracts. So, like, for somebody else, who took over the business and bought the assets, they'd have to get all new contracts, unless they're assignable, but still it's gonna cause some problems with the government stuff. So more important for you would be making sure that you have very clean documentation, very buttoned up financials as far as like tax returns and all this stuff, because when it comes time to sell your business, 
Like that's what could be like a major holdup for you is if all of that stuff isn't super clean because nobody wants to buy the actual stock of business because of the liabilities that come with that. First gotcha. you buy the assets and then you're leaving a lot of those liabilities behind. So like that would be like the number one thing I would think about is just making sure that everything is spotless. But then- cool. Nobody's told me that before, so I appreciate that. Yeah. <laughs> what do you guys think as far as the other stuff? Yeah, in that industry, it actually, I feel like it actually strengthens the argument and it strengthens the, uh, the value of the business. It, I wouldn't say that's always the case in every industry, but where you actually have, you said government contracts in place? Yeah, that to me seems like it would be, um, I'll just counter this by saying I'm not a government SaaS M&A person. Like that is not like my specialty, but to me the contract and the government that's gonna be a lot stickier is um, gonna actually be a value add for sure. Yeah, and I think that, so people are often like, okay, like, hey, what can I do to get that extra quarter percent multiple? If I do this, if I go from one year to three years, am I gonna get another, you know, like one X? But the reality is, what you should be focusing on, generally speaking, is ramping revenue, because almost always revenue is gonna outperform any sort of minimal multiple increase. Now, with the other thing I said, like that could just be like, they're not gonna buy your business because your books aren't clean and they need it, right? So like, that's like a binary situation. But with this, if, if trying to get somebody to sign a multi-year contract versus a single-year contract means that you're gonna sign 20% less people, then likely it's, it's more advantageous for you to just stick with the one year. But anytime you can sign somebody up for a multi-year, like why not unless you think that there's something you're gonna be doing where you'd wanna increase prices and that doesn't give you the flexibility to increase prices, um, then that could be a potential problem. Yeah. Do valuations change significantly once you pass one million in ARR? Is there something magical about one million ARR? And also at the next level up, I guess, is uh, maybe five million or 10 million AR. So I would say no, not AR. Mm. I would say it's more about like SD or, or EBITDA. Mm. Um, most of like private equity starts rolling in like when there's about a million dollars in profit. Okay. Um, so it, that's what I would say. What do you think? Yeah, I think more important than that is actually the growth of the business. Um, less just seeing a certain arbitrary revenue number. Um, I know that at certain levels, there are people that buy at certain levels, right? So at a smaller level, it's mostly likely going to be an individual or a couple individuals c coming together to buy businesses. Um, as you grow out in revenue size, then you become more of a target for, call them like long-term holding companies. Um, probably the biggest one in this space would be like a Constellation software or something like that. But there's smaller versions of those same kinds of companies mostly former employees of Constellation that have created these other little holding companies. And the multiples in that world are actually not as high as you would imagine, maybe three, four, five, because um, there's just not as much competition at that level. And then as you move up to closer to 10 million ARR, that's really where I think it opens up a lot more potential for bigger private equity companies to get in play. And that's just gonna drive up the competition of, um, of the deal, which is going to increase the multiple. Um, but in general, to me, the way I look at a business is what's its growth, what's its trajectory that way, more so than just a strict number. I know people have targets, like buyers have targets as to where they're looking, but there's always exceptions to those targets, and a lot of that is based on the growth of the business and like the churn of the business as well. So that strong growth rate, is that like 50% year over year or, or more are they looking for? I'm sorry, I didn't catch that. A strong growth rate, is that like 50% year over year or, or higher? 
Yeah, no, that would be great. You're right, the, the rule of, uh, of 40, right? So like something in that vein, 30, 40%, uh, to me is on a multi-year kind of basis, is still pretty strong growth. Um, it's all relative to your specific niche, your industry, your, your TAM and stuff like that, um, but yeah. And adding some more context, like the reason the amount is important and that there's like these thresholds is the buyers who come in at those levels. If, if you're not making enough, like a private equity can't roll in because they have, you know, fixed structural costs that they have to be able to cover through this acquisition. And if it's just too small, they can't put the professional resources behind that for it to actually make sense. So it's got to be of a sufficient size. And with a lot of businesses, like there's kind of like a 1 million, 2 million, 5, 10 million, like where different people roll in and start making acquisitions at that level. And that's why the multiples start going up. I'll just add that I had an eight-figure SaaS that I helped sell uh, a couple of years ago. And that business had um, just some weaker trends. It was pretty flat and had relatively high churn. And so it really comes back to it's very situational to the company that, and, and everything about that. So that's a huge, huge factor, I guess. So something to keep in mind as well. And in that situation, Chris, that was like a quasi-strategic right there. They were rolling up SaaS businesses around Amazon and stuff like that. And so do we have time for one more question? Yeah, we'll do one more. Okay. All right. Uh, yeah, hey, uh, is there any benefit to having one legal entity versus another, like an LLC versus C-Corp, S-Corp? Yes. It, oh, go ahead. This one's personal to me because it really mattered in, in my take home when I sold my business. Uh, to me, if you are going to, on the exit path of five years and you're trying to go for that mid, the mid-tier, um, then it really makes a lot of sense to try to use a C-Corp and go for QSBS if you're willing to, to roll a business for five years. And um, not all buyers are open to buying you know, stock, doing stock deals, but that changes. It, it, it's probably the, one of the biggest things that could affect the material value of the deal for you. Um, so to me, that's, it's an amazing world if you can kind of be in that place of holding for five years, building that, holding for five years, qualifying for QSBS and being big enough to be acquired by um, a, a private equity company or a holding company, that to me is like an amazing place to be because you will then actually take a lot of that cash home versus just giving up a lot of it in taxes. That's my opinion. So here, here's the one thing to remember with that, that whole QSB thing with the C-Corp, like that is a siren calling you into the rocks. <laughs> like seriously, right? Like 95% of deals, especially smaller deals, are going to be done as a asset sale. And it's very disadvantageous to be a C-Corp doing an asset sale. It's going to cost you more in taxes. So unless you're in a position where, like, you know you're going to have to do a stock sale, like with the government stuff, or you're of a sufficient size, like, don't fall for that trap. Like, it, it's, if you end up selling your business uh, and you have to, again, like, what ends up happening is if you're doing a, if you insist that it's going to be a stock sale, they're just going to lower what they're going to be willing to pay you for the additional risk that they're taking on by not doing the asset sale. So like, but once you get to a certain level, if, if it's gonna be a 30 or $50 million company, 100% go that route, right? But if it's a 100,000 or a million dollar company, chances are they're not gonna buy the stock, right? Yeah, so, so just on that, the small, medium, big size, where's your appetite, where are you going? If the trajectory and your strategy is to land kind of in that mid-level, 
being able to sell to my micro private equity, private equity, to me it makes a lot of sense. If it's below that, probably not worth the pain, probably not worth the, the extra headache around those things. But um, yeah, that's, that's my take. All right guys, thank you, Andrew.